got our prenup by Hello Prenup, blah, 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 blah. We got a prenup in here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like. I think there's a huge alternative content play. Yeah. I bet prenup TikTok is huge. I don't, <laughs> we'll have to check that later and see. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no corner of the internet that's not huge on TikTok. The weirdest having things, you're like, there's a whole niche on that? <laughs> totally fair. <laughs> everyone, and welcome to Another Bite, where we rewatch some of the most innovative and intriguing pitches from Shark Tank. I'm Jory, and I'm joined by Ariel. Sup, kid? Wicked smart. Pocket caw. And John. How you doing? Today, we're shipping up to Boston, kid. Three pitches, one incredible city. Who will get the Shark Tank deal? And an even better question, who will get our golden bite? One way to find out. But first, a quick word from the people that keep the audio on. There's no secret formula for better service throughout the customer journey. But there is the all-new Service Hub from HubSpot. By bringing service and support together in one powerful platform, you can deliver the best experiences for your customers and your teams. Free up time for your reps to focus on complex issues with an AI-powered help desk. Also, you can easily support, strengthen, and grow your customer base. Secrets out. HubSpot Service Hub is a game changer. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to do more for your customers today. So first in the tank, we have Snagastool. And this comes to us from founders Jamie and Dean. And they come to the Sharks asking for $120,000 for a very specific 18% stake in their company. That shakes out to a, bear with me, $666,000 valuation. And the product they're really selling to us is a mobile app to guarantee that you book the best seat in the house. That's right, folks. It is a booking reservation app for specific seats at your local Boston bar. So just thinking about that valuation or that value add, what are our initial thoughts of Snagastool? Boston, Massachusetts is home to some of the greatest innovations in the history of the world. Bold, unbiased take. (laughs) (laughs) The chocolate chip cookie, the telephone, Facebook, marshmallow fluff, America. Not too shabby. Some really incredible innovations came out of Boston. (laughs) (laughs) And Snagastool is not one of them. That is for sure. I find the concept of Snagastool an affront to the very nature of the bar. Wow. Mm. Bars are about equanimity, not exclusivity. I would Mm. love to see somebody try and walk up to a bar in Southie and show a regular who's sitting on a bar (laughs) stool that they actually reserve that seat. I'd like to see how that conversation goes. I don't think it would go very well. Yeah, I was going to ask, is this a thing in Boston that actually people would leverage and utilize. You are not going to walk up to a townie and be like, get off that stool. That's just not going to (laughs) happen. It's not going to happen. And so I just, for those reasons, I'm out. (laughs) From the get-go. Bulls. This is horrible. You know, it's interesting, right? Because I think that that was actually the initial reaction we get from the Sharks, right? And I think that they pose some interesting questions right out of the gate on the value add of this particular reservation software. One of the things that the founder is trying to say is that it's going to bring in customers, much like something like Open Table would, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're able to reserve their seat. Maybe they're working late. Maybe they have other things going on, but they know that they're going to get their favorite seat at the bar. But the problem with this value add versus that of a restaurant, I think, is something that 
Rob nails really quickly. He's like, you know, if it's an off-peak timing, and that's like your value add to bring customers in during that time, a bar is not going to struggle because the person's going to find a seat at the bar. It's off-peak. It's probably empty seats. But during peak times, there's like very little incentive for bars to save a stool, especially if you have A, regulars, or B, like you just have a bunch of people in the bar that are trying to snag a seat. Like, it's interesting because I think it's like trying to shift where the value is. Right. And that's one thing I noticed, too, that the founders really leaned on was the value, the value, but then never proceeded to explain what the value was. And the sharks kind of go into this, too, of like, hey, you need to have a proof of concept. That's really important to make sure that the value that you're thinking this provides actually does provide it for the end user. I will challenge you, John, because maybe this isn't meant for like a Boston place, but if you're down in like a Charlotte place like me where there's a bunch of like Mm -hmm. little bougie restaurants and little breweries that are like opening up on every single corner, I could see something like this actually doing pretty well if that value is added. So few thoughts. American Express bought Resi to specifically offer that as like an add-on for card members. Like I could see a snag a stool potentially working within a same like partnership realm as that, but really identifying what is the value? Do they get a loyalty experience? So if you reserve a stool, do you get a special drink? If you use a passcode with like the bartender, do you get a special deal off? Like there was no incentive and no real value to the end user, which I think, you know, the concept could work. It's just a matter of they really didn't think through what that value was is very ambiguous. Yeah, I think you both make some really good points on that. And this whole concept of like, what is the value exchange of this app, I think is actually probably one of the biggest questions that is unknown. And I kind of saw that there's two very different use cases playing out here, right? There's two jobs to be done. One job to be done is I want to get a seat at a busy bar during a really busy time, right? And that use case is about access, The other use case is I want to create a customer acquisition vehicle for bars to bring more people in. And that is probably needs to be more of a rewards or an incentive use case. And so I just think that they haven't nailed which of those they're going to do. And I think you would have very different solutions depending on which use case you wanted to go after. The open table example is a really good one. And you're right. There are lots of bars that want to get people to sit down to have a meal or to settle in, they want to guarantee that flow. But that solves more for the customer acquisition use case and not for the access use case of getting a, a seat at a really high time. Mm-hmm. I guess that was my question. It's like, who's keeping tabs of the inventory of each of the chairs? Yeah. Is the bartender going to say, hey, don't sit there. I'm not going to serve you. Like, there's so many question marks of like the logistics behind how this actually works too. That's where the equanimity comes in. The whole point <laughs> is that at the bar... Anybody has an equal shot of getting a stool, and that's what they're designed for. They're designed to handle overflow of patrons, and they're designed to create a space where lots of people can settle in. And the idea that you're going to hold seats back at the bar just because somebody reserved it on an app is ridiculous. I could see it being for, let's say you want to get like a bunch of friends. I want to rent out the area for like a party or something versus like from a party planning perspective, I could actually see that potentially working. So what I'm also hearing though, is it seems like there's like a demographic slash targeting issue, right? Because I wonder too, if something that you've mentioned is like the Charlotte scene, the brunch scene is definitely strong in Boston, can verify that. But I guess when I was hearing this pitch, I was thinking of like the types of bars 
that are really common in Boston, which are mm. dive bars. It's yeah. like the sticky kind of damp, slightly dark places. Yeah. And I could definitely see it playing out in the brewery scene, right? Because you, you want to get your spot. There's like definitely a culture around that. But like walking into a place like Trina's and in Inman and expecting any kind of loyalty to whatever reservation on a stool <laughs> to fly with that local crowd. Maybe it's just that by saying bars as like this single monolith, that's where I'm kind of not seeing the value here. Because I guess when I think about bars and potentially when someone like in Charlotte thinks about bars, they're meaning different experiences. And so I wonder if like part of this is the narrative they're crafting with their pitch is just like, it could mean so many different things to so many different people. And those people are looking for different experiences. Jory, do you think if they ran this anywhere else outside of Boston, you know, not like dive bars in like Southie, but like in any other place, do you think they would have had more of a shot of being successful? Or do you think because they are in Boston that that made it a little bit more difficult? I think they could definitely be successful even in Boston if they were a little bit more clear that they were catering to that higher end clientele that is looking for access, right? I think that if they focused on something like the brunch narrative, which is just like, you're going to have lines around the block, even in Boston, then I could start to see it. But then my question is, why would people choose to book on a bar stool app versus just a table for brunch? Yeah. There's a lot of like narrative issues kind of regardless of the demographic, because you're going to find dive bars and a mixture of high end bars in any city. Yeah. This is where it's like, they're not trying to solve the open table use case of I want to book a meal at a restaurant. I think restaurants already have the tech for that. You're either going to get someone access to a seat that they couldn't otherwise get and guarantee that for them, or you're going to convince them to go to a bar that they wouldn't otherwise go to because there's a seat there. And in theory, for that latter one, you have to offer a reward. And it turns out most of the time when you create these reward programs, they only really appeal to like the worst consumers. Like, just to be super blunt. The conditioned shoppers. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's just like there is a whole segment of consumer who essentially operate solely on deals. And typically, if someone is operating mostly on deals, the thing they care about the most is cost savings, yep. which is like not actually what you're looking for as a bar owner if you're saving a seat for somebody, right? You don't want someone to come in who's just going to get the free beer and then be like, well, okay, I'm moving on to the next place to get my free beer. Like you want someone who wants to settle in for the night. Mm -hmm. There is a business model where this works, I think. And Mr. Wonderful started to get to it. And there are actually some apps I've heard of doing this for restaurants now, but it's basically like you have to do a guaranteed minimum for the bar. You have to basically say, this is for a high-end use case, and I'm going to guarantee you that this person is going to spend $250 at the bar with you. And that is going to make it worthwhile for the bar to hold the seat back. They're going to say, okay, I'm going to do that because I'm going to guarantee this amount of money. And if somebody has that amount of money and they want to spend it, then they could book through this. And so I think that's the only use case this really works. I feel like people that really want a reservation, they're going to want a table at the bar for like a group of people, not just like a single bar stool. Well, there has to be some kind of unique offering. On Open Table, for example, I think uh, restaurants are charged a flat fee, right? That's like kind of how their revenue model works. So if you had something like Snag a Stool in market, not only would the restaurants have to pay that essentially like monthly flat rate fee, but they would also have to offer some kind of incentive or promotion to entice someone to get that bar stool seat. So 
whether it is like special entertainment or a special like mm. menu or dinner or like a course meal, that's also putting extra fees back on the restaurant itself, which just is not as lucrative. No bars are going to go for this. No restaurants are going to go for this. Yeah. The LTV to the restaurant needs to be much higher. Definitely. And I think a lot of what we're also talking about is sort of what the sharks dig into, where it's like this app was initially launched and like it's partnered with three bars as a proof of concept, but it's so early. They're in the midst of not knowing like who exactly it's for, the type of restaurant or bar they're actually trying to sell to, a lot of questions of this narrative of value add. And it's ultimately why the sharks all like one by one just went out just because they couldn't see the value. They had no sales at the point of Shark Tank. They were in three bars outside of Boston <laughs> and they wanted a $660,000 valuation. <laughs> Despite not landing a Shark Tank deal, right after the show, they did land a short-lived partnership with Lyft where users would receive a $50 credit toward a ride when they booked a reservation on the app. Mm. But ultimately... The app did suffer from a lack of a strong user base, so it never gained as much traction after the tank that we typically see. Ultimately, though, Snagastool lasted one year after appearing on Shark Tank and closed their doors in September 2016. So our next, next segment is actually a complete, complete left turn, turn but, but sort of, sort of still, still in the same area of apps. So next in the tank, we have Hello Prenup, which is, as the name might clue you in on, a prenup service. So it comes to us from founders Julia and Sarah Beth, and you know it's going to be a good pitch when two women roll up in wedding dresses. So they come down the aisle quite literally holding their flowers, and they're asking for... $150,000 investment for a 10% stake in their company, which shakes out to about a $1.5 million valuation. And their product for us is Hello Prenup, which allows you to get a prenup from the comfort of your own house. So essentially, instead of going to a lawyer, which can be really expensive and time-consuming, you create your agreement with your fiancé in hours instead of months for a fraction of the cost. It comes with a complete in-depth questionnaire with terms and conditions, and we love a form with highlighter green checkboxes. It allows you to really reconcile your differences and then download your prenup. So, yeah, it's a prenup service. And thinking about our product and our wedding pitch, what are we thinking about this product? I love this product. I 100% am sold on this product, especially considering how high divorce rates are nowadays. And also like destigmatizing prenups as well. Of mm -hmm. It's not a sign of necessarily a potentially bad marriage. There's just people in very different financial positions in their life. And it's not, you know, wrong to get a prenup necessarily. But I think this is helpful from like the younger generation and having an app to have it all streamlined. I think one of the main reasons to believe or RTBs that they, you know, shared during their pitch was that to get an attorney, it's about what, $6,000 and months worth of time mm -hmm. for the prenup. The fact that they're offering it at like, what, $5.99, which is essentially, what, 10% of the price mm -hmm. and less amount of time is just really compelling, I think, especially for nowadays when you want things to move a little bit faster. Yeah. And they cite that the prenup market is like $515 million. So it's not small. <laughs> so Ariel, I like the idea of destigmatizing prenups. I actually like the idea of technology that helps guide discussions between partners about finances and money and how to think about that stuff. It's so like taboo in society to talk about this stuff and get educated on it, but it actually turns out to be like one of the most important things. So conceptually, I'm with you. I am not in on this company though. 
I don't think they're going to be able to succeed because I think that there are a bunch of online legal players that offer a much broader range of services. And I think what that means for those players is that they're going to be able to spend a lot more to acquire on all the prenup use cases. Rocket Lawyer, LegalZoom. If LegalZoom, I'm almost sure, must offer a prenup service. And the problem is, I bet that LegalZoom finds if they get someone to do a prenup, they can also end up doing two or three other jobs for that person. And so their lifetime value of a customer that LegalZoom acquires is much higher than what Hello Prenup could have from a lifetime value. And so therefore, I just think they're going to be in a really tough position because I think that the bigger like portfolio online legal services are going to be able to spend a lot more to market and sell. And that's going to leave Hello Prenup in a pretty indefensible spot. But it has a low barrier to entry, I would argue, compared to like a legal Zoom. If I'm going on legal Zoom, I'm like, where do I start? Oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed. There's so many different forms or different things to kind of look at. So I think from a user experience perspective, that will give them a little more of a cutting edge, especially if this turns into like an app or something you can just do on your phone. Yeah, you're right. If they have some sort of like user experience advantage because they are uniquely defining for the prenup experience, you're potentially right. I'm under the impression that LegalZoom is pretty darn easy to use, and that's kind of their value prop. I think that LegalZoom and Rocket Lawyer and Hello Prenup are all circling around this idea that the legal profession is totally ripe for technology disruption. And I actually love that. Like there's a company called Notarize out of Boston that I think is so cool. Mm -hmm. It's like quasi-legal because, you know, notaries aren't lawyers, but like love that. And I think that there's a lot of talk now about like what will AI do to the legal profession? Mm -hmm. And you know, there's like major disruption coming there. But I think that LegalZoom's found in the exact same premise as Hello Prenup. They just are able to spend a lot more on sales and marketing. You know, it comes to us from a founder who's a divorce attorney, which I think is a very interesting perspective on like weddings and prenups. Mm -hmm. And in this case, I felt like I was trying to understand it through the lens of what we talk about in terms of vitamins versus painkillers. And this seems to be like kind of like a vitamin, kind of like a painkiller. But if they had focused on really cutting down the pain of like all the legalities of getting married and making that their product focus, and it could have been multi-component. That brings up a good point, Jory. At what point is a business like trying to expand and solve all the problems as opposed mm -hmm. to just focusing on one? Like what is the fine line between being too niche versus really perfecting and like getting a proof of concept down in one area and then potentially expanding? You should nail one use case before mm -hmm. you expand too broadly into a whole portfolio offering. So I think that is definitely right. And you can make the case that Hello Prenup is going to start with the prenup and maybe expand into other things. They are branding only on this one use case, though, which is pretty high risk for them and potentially creates a situation where, like, they're just going to be pigeonholed as this one thing, and I'm not sure it's defensible for them. So we talk a lot about inbound marketing, right? And, like, owning content and owning a subject matter. Like, on the flip side of pigeonholing them... You actually also have an opportunity, though, and it is to be the industry thought leader in prenups. So I was curious on your take of like, they are the Internet's like number one source for all the information you need about prenups. And from a content marketing standpoint, I thought that was a really strong idea. What's your take on that as a marketing strategy? 
I love that marketing strategy. I think their biggest challenge in executing on that marketing strategy will be maintaining domain authority on the broader topic that they're in. I actually did a search around this just to see like, how are they doing? Because I was like, oh, they're inbound marketers. This is awesome. Like they have Google ads. <laughs> they were the first thing I saw. Yeah. If you go down yeah. though, and you're like fifth or behind the knot, like a bunch of things, mm. you know, where like you've got these huge sites you've established amazing domain relevance on weddings and the process of getting married. And if those sites move into the prenup space, which the knot and others have, then they'll just outrank Hello Prenup in a lot of situations. They could do some interesting partnerships, right? They could say, mm -hmm. actually, I do want to go to the knot and I'm going to make a deal with the knot that we're going to give the knot an affiliate commission for every prenup you refer to us and let's partner on this together. And like sometimes it's easier to get that sort of agreement together on specific use cases versus just like generally. I'm curious too, what percentage of their audience is searching for this in Google mm. versus traditional search, which we talk about as we know the world of search is changing. People are going on TikTok now to begin to like search for content and find new things. So I almost wonder with like a content marketing strategy, how much of it could be successful if potentially they partnered with like influencers that are couples that are like, we got our prenup by hello prenup, blah, blah, blah. We blah. got a prenup in here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I think there's a huge alternative content play. Yeah. I bet prenup TikTok is huge. I don't, <laughs> we'll have to check that later and see. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> no corner of the internet that's not huge on TikTok. The weirdest evidence things. You're like, there's a whole niche on that? <laughs> totally fair. <laughs> but I think you bring up a good point because like TikTok is really good at destigmatizing conversations, right? And I've, mm -hmm. I've seen in the last couple months, especially as we think about things like mental health that are difficult to talk about. TikTok does a great job at getting like influencers talking about a topic that up until recently, like a lot of people felt uncomfortable talking about. So this could actually be a really interesting way to be like, millennials, zillennials, Gen Z and below, let's get talking about it. Because yeah, the more you hear about it, less scary a topic is. I could see performing really well for people like me that have trust issues. I mean, just kidding. <laughs> That's a whole different TikTok slice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did think though, the 30% offer that the guest host came in, the CEO of Nextdoor, the offer that he had, I think actually was quite fair. I think, you know, it was clear. And I think one of the founders was talking about, you know, I'm an attorney, I got like my tech person, but to have someone within the tech space that could lean in and advise a little bit more to your point, like, can we scale beyond just this niche? Like, what are some of the other components? I actually thought was a really good offer for them. And I was surprised that they did not go with him. They got this great offer. And then they were like, Kevin, what do you have to say? <laughs> Which, I mean, for acquisition, they had 20K lifetime sales. That comes out to, what, 33 customers? So they have a small customer base. Going through Kevin makes sense from, like, the customer data. And because he has all of the wedding stuff for, like, remarketing lists, he can just add that within the bundle. Like, I'm not surprised that Kevin was, like, their pick. I agree. I mean, I think what they asked for was completely unrealistic, right? A $1.5 million valuation. They've done $20,000 in lifetime sales. That is a gigantic multiple. Never mind the fact that they're not even making money from a profit basis. And so, you know, it seems like they basically just landed on a generic valuation, not based on the fundamentals so much as the potential. And it's interesting because Nirav, he's a guest shark. And I think sometimes a guest shark is like the perfect fit for the company. And they're like, I want that guest shark. But sometimes the guest shark, they're like, well, you're like 
obviously very successful and would probably add value, but you're not actually a shark. Like you're not tapped into that whole shark tank network. Like, you know, I'd imagine a big part of what happens with the sharks over time is their portfolios grow. They get more and more companies involved that creates partnerships. Mm -hmm. You know, when I talked to the cousin Maine lobster guys who got a deal with Barbara, they were like, it has been incredible to be part of Barbara's community. Like that's been one of the Mm -hmm. best parts. And you don't quite get that with a guest shark. And so for someone like Nurev and Nextdoor, where there is definitely some relevant experience, but that's just like getting an investor versus like the full goodness of a true shark. That's fair. Long-term benefits. Yeah. Ultimately, though, our two founders were able to get the best of both worlds. A little bit of guest shark, a little bit of normal shark. And they were able to seal the deal with Narav and Kevin for $150,000 for a 30% stake, kind of a split between our two sharks. So, yeah, they were able to kind of capture the advantages of having both. Why not both? I'd like to see the legal agreement between them and the sharks. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I bet it was solid. I bet it was legit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, as a company update, after the tank, the company's sales increased by 500%. Oh. Currently, the company covers prenups in 32 states in the U.S., and Kevin and Narav are still an active part of the company. So one small note, we were talking about how LegalZoom might have a prenup area. It actually doesn't. And because it kind of has this gap in its offerings, the founder of LegalZoom, Brian Liu, actually invested in this company. Wow. Which okay, is that's kind a of like surprise. a funny full circle thing. Yep. I love that. <laughs> Instead of buying out your competition, encourage them yeah. and lift them up. Yes. We love it when businesses oh, work together. Love it. Or, or try and make money on them. Yeah, yeah that too. <laughs> Best of both worlds. <laughs> So last in the tank, we have Love Pop, and this comes from founders Wambi and John. They come asking the Sharks for $300,000 for a 10% stake in their company, which shakes out to a $3 million valuation. Love Pop is looking to spread the love one pop-up card at a time. They're sort of like those pop-up paper storybooks, but like in the form of a card. You may have seen them in your local grocery store or wherever you buy your cards. But if you're in the Boston area, anyone who has walked through South Station has definitely seen one of these stands selling these cards. And essentially to kind of like showcase how versatile the product is, they give each of the sharks their own pop-up card. Rob gets one with a car. Lori gets one with like a women's silhouette with a shopping bag. Mark gets a basketball player. Kevin gets a money sign because of course. And Barbara gets a real estate skyline. Jory, I love how excited you are by this. I can tell just how much you love this product. So I actually didn't know that this was a product that was on Shark Tank, right? And I was really excited when I found out that it was going to be one of our segments. There's just like something about these cards where I've kept every single one that my husband or family has ever given me. Me too. And I think part of it is because it's like a story. It's something really physical Mm -hmm. and they're just so endearing. Yeah, they're special. They're beautiful. They're absolutely gorgeous. And I have a child and so I've read a lot of pop-up books like a lot of them pretty quick. You're like, this is not going to make it. Like I'm going to get like four reads out of this book. Oh, and nothing's yeah. popping after that. <laughs> These cards are like, they are solid. They're super legit. Yeah. And so the same boat, it's like the kind of thing that I'm like, if I do keep it, it will be durable. And it is so beautiful. The level of intricacy they're able to get and the level of design aesthetic 
that they have associated with them is so high. For sure. I think we can all agree, and I bet everyone listening who has seen a Love Pop card agrees, it is a great product. It is a really, really, really good product. And I think it is really well positioned. They're like the next level up from Hallmark in terms of positioning, like the impact that a card can have on somebody's life and what it means. And and I love their positioning as well. The question is, is it a good business? Mm. And I think that is the thing that we really have to break down today is do they have a strategy to sell a lot of these? What should they be valued for, et cetera? So let's dig into it. John, first thoughts? Well, I'm having a hard time with their kiosk model just to begin with. Mm-hmm. Well, in the beginning part of the segment, you both were talking about how everyone saw Love Hops like in the Southeast station, right? So like mm-hmm. it does sound like there is a significant amount of volume that's coming through for some of these placements. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. So actually, I've been to South Station a lot. I've never seen the Love Pop kiosk. My observation of most people walking around South Station is that they've got their face in their phone and they're not looking yeah. at kiosks of anything. But- You're right. You can get some volume, but it's like nothing compared to the volume you can get through a digital marketing direct-to-consumer channel. And so my assumption is that if they are all in on the kiosk model is because they believe that they cannot sell it unless people see it and experience it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the assumption that is worth testing around because otherwise you would never pursue that strategy because it is so much cheaper to sell through a digital channel and you get so much more scale through a digital channel. So like, why didn't they go all in on that? How much of it do we think is like the lack of the storytelling piece? We talked about this before with like Scrub Daddy and having to like explain the use case and like being able to make that more clear to folks. So if really their main reasoning for sticking with the kiosk model is to explain and like I get why, you know, logistically why they wanted to have that experience and have more time like to peruse with the product. But I just wonder how much of it could have been solved through whether it's visual storytelling or videos of like the different pop-ups that you have as opposed to relying on that sole means of foot traffic. This is like so perfect for video advertising. Mm -hmm. You could totally imagine just like all these amazing cards opening up and like people would freak out about it. I mean, they were on in 2015. Like the visual internet was huge at that point. I mean, Instagram hadn't quite gone to video yet. But it wasn't that far off. I don't know. I think that you're right, Ariel. If they had gone all in on some really powerful visual storytelling, they could have done like stop motion style. Yeah. Like I think there's so many interesting ways to like leverage the depth and 3D nature of these cards to create online experiences that show off the value. Yeah. Even just showing how it's made. Like the fact that they have backgrounds in what ship design, like of all the things. That's niche. So if they were to completely ditch their sort of like physical kiosk model and focus on that online first mentality, what would that playbook look like? How would you recommend they start marketing this? What's the strategy they could pivot to? Oh, there's a few different ways. You can always go with the behind the scenes and do like to John's point, a cute little stop motion of all the little components and all the intricate details because then you're highlighting like how much details are in the product. It's a really fascinating way for cards to be made besides just having a printer and like your typical card stock process. I think, you know, sharing and just displaying the product itself Doing a cute little series around is it a card or is it art could also be really interesting. Doing some collabs and partnerships with different artists online to get their work or their designs that they would then like print to help amplify their audience. Like I think there's a ton of options for that more like social first digital storytelling. Yeah, I would probably focus on the use cases that are the most memorable 
graduations, weddings. Oh, with the feelings marketing, get them right in the feels. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> and so this just comes down to willingness to pay, right? And you're like, well, how do you maximize how much you can charge people for this card? And I think people are always willing to spend more on use cases that are more once in a lifetime versus every year, right? Like, you know, we each have a birthday every year. It's not that you don't want a nice card, but like, you know, weddings are a use case where, you know, people want their guests to remember their wedding forever, mm -hmm. right? Like this could actually be their invitation. Wedding invitations would be a hugely mm -hmm. profitable path for them to go down. So there's a whole bunch of like use cases like that, that I think they could charge a ton of money and just crank up their profit. And then I think through that, you would just build probably a half partnerships, half digital strategy. You would get essentially all of the magazines talking about you creating a little affiliate program for them on it because you are charging so much and making so much money. You can give them a nice kickback. And I think you get a little flywheel going. What did you both think about the price? They said, what, $8 to $13 per card? Could they have sold way more? Would you pay more? Jory for yours, knowing that they last years. So I think it was interesting because the sharks were like, they went way too far. They were like, you know, you could charge 50. You could charge a hundred dollars. Yeah. Absolutely not. No one's buying a card for a hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. That's very bullish. Yeah. yeah. Like That's I could not relate talk less. Right there. Yeah. Eight to thirteen dollars, I feel like, is a very fair price point, knowing that it's a little bit more high-end and knowing that it lasts several years. I think anything more than that, and they start to kind of edge out their more general use case, like their general consumer. And then it starts to get into a more like niche market of like high-end paper goods and thing. stationery. So I think anything more than their current pricing, at least in my point of view, they run the risk of alienating their consumer base. Yeah. My sense is that they should not actually focus on the general use cases. I think that the willingness to pay for those use cases is just not as high as it needs to be to justify their price tag, which makes me think they could go mm. much more niche and then charge a lot more. I think basically the more niche you go, if you're going into the right niches, the willingness to pay will go up because the emotional association with that goes up and people also during those particular events are just a lot looser with money and a whole bunch of things like that. Mm -hmm. I think they might end up in a situation where if they're just going for like birthdays and they want to be like in CVS next to all the other birthday cards, you know, I think even $8 is too high. I think people would be like, uh, I don't know if I'm paying that. Like, it's just a birthday. I would. <laughs> well, ultimately, we got an interesting feeding frenzy between Rob and Kevin. And this is like a kind of an interesting spin on these two sharks. Robert made the first offer. Yeah. Robert was like, I want to make you an offer. And Kevin was like, hey, Robert, why don't we go in together? And Robert was like, I don't need you, Mr. Wonderful. And Mr. Wonderful then was like, fine, yes. same offer as Robert. Which is a smart strategy. And Robert like just leaned back. He was like, yep. I just lost this deal. Like, I'm definitely going to lose to Mr. Wonderful because I always lose yeah. to Mr. Wonderful. Well, the offer certainly popped off because our founders walked away with a deal with Kevin and he had given them $300,000 for 15%. Congrats, Love Pop team. Love it. Bit of a company update. So after airing, the Love Pop team currently produces about 20,000 cards a month in over 100 different designs. So they've currently opened several brick and mortar stores in Boston, California, and Florida, as well as New York City. So that's a difficult market. Amazing that they have a store there. Yeah. Their annual revenue is, get this, $160 million. So by no means chump change, current strategy very much working. So love pop. Who knew? Car.
cards. Am I right? (laughs) All right. Well, we had three Boston companies. You can only give a single golden bite to one of these companies. Which one are you giving it to? Ariel? Hello, prenup. No thought at all. Just hello. Shocking. Yes. Take note, potential suitors. (laughs) Dang. (laughs) Look. It's destigmatizing something that has been stigmatized, which I'm all for. I'm all for creating a simpler solution at a lower price point. Me too. Well, I'm going to give my golden prenup to Love Pop. What's oh, not uh, a prenup? Oh my God. My golden greeting card goes to Love Pop. I think it's an absolutely incredible product and they've done really well. I know the emotions that I've gotten from receiving Love Pops. So to me, it's a no brainer. Today's episode was written and produced by the brilliant mind of Matthew Brown. Additional support comes from Melanie Romero. Are you following the show yet? Barbara, are you following? I'm out. (laughs) You know, she really is my favorite. You can follow and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe that's Apple Podcasts. Maybe that's Spotify. Maybe you're that one person in the world who still uses a Microsoft Zune. R.I.P. Wherever works for you, works for me, baby. That's it for me, for real this time. We'll see you next week in the tank for another bite.